At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Among the joys of my many years at WABE is having H. Johnson as a colleague and friend. H. is a consummate host. His warmth, humor, and enthusiasm delight listeners. Keep us tuned in and returning to hear more of his encyclopedic jazz knowledge. We're thrilled that H is also a music contributor to City Lights now. Later this hour, you can hear H. Johnson's jazz moment, highlighting one of my favorite musicians, Jimmy Smith. On a related note, speaking of the arts, our series of local artists in their own words, today features Amber Nicole, whose artwork incorporates vinyl records. First, in the 42 years since CNN made its debut as the first 24-hour news channel, Brave photojournalists on the front lines have covered wars, natural disasters, and dynamic changes in politics. No Ordinary Life, a new documentary directed by Heather O'Neill, follows five trailblazing camera women who filmed dangerous situations in ordered to bring truth to light. The film will debut on CNN on Labor Day, September 5th. Director and filmmaker Heather O'Neill joins me now via Zoom, along with Maria Fleet, one of the photojournalists featured in the documentary, Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Heather, No Ordinary Life it was your directorial debut on a feature documentary film, and I saw it premiered at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival. What was your connection with these camera women before creating the documentary? 
Well, um, the first camera woman I ever met in my entire life was Mary Rogers when I was working in Baghdad in 2006 for CNN. And I had never met a camera woman before in my whole career. And I was really kind of blown away by her, her fierceness and professionalism and just her dedication to her job and you know working in a very difficult place. And it kind of planted a seed back then that, you know, wow, this would be a really interesting story. And then I began to meet the other women and, you know, it just sort of stuck with me over my career at CNN that, you know, gosh, this is a really, this is an untold story. You know, the world knows these, you know, global events that these women covered, but I, I don't know if they know that it was, you know, five uh, international trailblazing camera women, uh, you know, behind the camera. So that was really, you know, my kind of the genesis of this film. Mm. Maria, what inspired you to pursue photojournalism and to want to be a camera person? Well, I started at CNN one year after it went on the air, and I had been in journalism school, and I'd actually done some camera work while I was in journalism school, but I wasn't really sure how I was going to direct myself, where I was going to direct myself. I was working inside the studio and working as an editor in the first few months that I was at CNN. And then they decided that they were going to have the editors rotate out into the field and work with some of the cameramen. So I did that. And once I got out into the field, I never looked back. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be taking these pictures out here where the, the events are happening. Wow. There is a moment in the documentary where you speak about the power of photos, and I was moved by the description of your role witnessing the event for the world with breaking news and during momentous events. How did you approach covering sensitive situations in order to be respectful but capturing the story truthfully? You know, when you're when you're photographing, you are thinking about a million things at once. There are a million things going on in your mind. You're trying to to just technically keep everything together and and frame a, your shot and think of the exposure and everything else and trying to also anticipate what might be happening around you and, and knowing, being aware of other things that are happening around you. But you always have to keep your focus inside also the viewfinder and, and be very, as you say, sensitive to what is going on there. So it's kind of a balancing act. But I think that all of us really, really focused on the individuals and the, the human beings that were going through a lot of the, the trauma that we saw them experiencing in war zones, being uprooted and being thrown out of their homes or shell, having to shelter from bombing. We always kept the, the individual in, in our minds. A former colleague of yours on film says, the only people who really have to put their lives on the line are the cameramen. I wished he had said 
camera people, but we got the gist of it. How did you keep calm in explosive situations and during crossfire? It, it is true that the camera person is kind of the point person, but we were lucky enough to also be working in teams since we usually had at least a, a partner or two that were kind of keeping eyes out around us. And sometimes you can just sort of go into, into that frame in the viewfinder and you know that's, that's kind of your safe space. That's what you're thinking about what's, what's going on there. And you have so many things to think about that you can kind of shelter yourself in a way emotionally from feeling the fear of or the, the emotion of the situation. You try and put that aside because you're a professional and you're, you're focused on what you're doing. So there's sort of almost a, a comfort in going into the viewfinder and knowing that you have a job to do. And that's what keeps your focus. In the film, Heather brings out the sisterhood that resulted from your working relationship with the other colleagues who are subjects. Would you talk about your relationship with the other camera people, the other female photojournalists in this documentary? Yes, well, we we all started at CNN in the early days. So we were not only, you know, starting our careers together and learning all about journalism in the real world at that time, but we went through these experiences and it was important to know that we had other, not just other camera people, but other women that we could lean on to who, who knew what we had been through. You know, we, we all had shared experiences of being in these really dangerous situations. And it was kind of comforting to know that you, you, there was somebody there that you could talk to, that you could share those experiences with and who knew what you'd been through. And that was unique. How did the profession bond you all for life? I think, you know, just having gone through some of the experiences that we did and recording history as we did in those decades, especially in the 80s and 90s, really just kind of, we, we had a front row to history and that was, we, we all realized how privileged we were to have that front row in history. And that kind of was a, was a bond for us as well. Indeed. I mean, you captured some of the most pivotal moments in, in recent history. After 9-11, you won a Peabody Award for your reporting on Al-Qaeda. Would you share a story or any stories of your time in Iraq during the U.S. invasion in 2003? Well, I think one of the most profound experiences that I had was 
it was shortly after the the U.S. Marines had uh, taken Baghdad, but they had not taken Tikrit yet. And so we were investigating around the area around Tikrit because that was Saddam's hometown. And it was thought that he would make his final stand there if he were to make a final stand. And we deemed it safe enough. We were in a couple of cars in a convoy and we deemed it safe enough to go into the town. But when we went into the town, we were kind of surrounded by some gunmen that were in pickup trucks and we decided to turn around. They chased us out of town and the, the uh, gunmen shot up our, our car. And uh, there were about 12 rounds that came into my car. And I thought, I, I really thought that we had just made a miscalculation and, and that, was, that was how it was gonna end for me. It was kind of this weird sobering like thought, like, wow, we, we messed up. And this is how it ends. In, in war zones, you're always taking calculated risks. We're, none of us are, none of us are adrenaline junkies. When we went into these areas, we were always as aware as we could be of all of the risks, of all of the dangers. And as you get closer to any kind of front line or danger point, you get more and more uh, detailed information. So you have a lot of information to work on and you're just taking a calculate, you're calculating your risk every step of the way. But in that case, we, you know, it's always possible that you can miscalculate and it can cost you your life. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz speaking with filmmaker Heather O'Neill and photojournalist Maria Fleet. We're discussing their documentary, No Ordinary Life. Was it covering war-torn regions that especially motivated you to cover the stories of refugees throughout your career? There's, of course, the, the sort of geopolitical aspect of any conflict and of course that's important, but what drew myself and I think what my, I think my fellow camera women will agree, we really kind of focused on the bystanders of war, those people who were affected by war, but who had through no fault of their own were a part of it. And I think that was our, we just felt very strongly that these stories needed to be told the, the stories of the people who were affected by the conflicts. You are currently a news desk reporter at CNN International here in Atlanta. What was it like for you to transition from being on the front lines in war zones to being behind a desk reporting? <laughs> well, just to be clear, I'm no longer at CNN, okay. but I did transition to working inside at the uh, headquarters of CNN again. I think, you know, being out in the field gave me just a lot of insight to what my colleagues that were still in the field were going through. And I think it made me much more sympathetic to their situations on the ground, definitely, because when you're at the headquarters and trying to uh, make sure that material gets back for the program to be in the programs, 
people get worked very hard out in the field. And we had, I kept in mind always how the hours and the stress can have an effect on my colleagues out in the field. And I think that did inform the way I, I worked with them. When did you decide to retire as a camera person? You know, at a certain point, I could tell that it's a very, very physical job. And at a certain point, I could tell that it was kind of having some, you know, wear and tear on my body. And I didn't want to wait. I had colleagues that had even male colleagues who were much bigger and, you know, stronger than I was who who had chronic problems with their backs and, and, and shoulders and things. And so I, I actually decided I was going to transition away from camera work, unfortunately, because I really do love camera work, but I was going to transition out of it and become a producer so that, you know, just to save my body, because it really is, it's pretty tough. Yeah. How much does one of those cameras weigh? Oh, they can, I weigh about, you know, 20 something pounds and, you know, they've changed, it's changed over the years, but you're also additionally carrying all sorts of other gear on top of that. And so it can be arduous. Yeah. And it's resting on your shoulder close to your neck and you're schlepping all that other stuff. It is wear and tear on anybody. Heather, the documentary imparts suspense. I mean, my heart was beating faster. At times, it feels like an action film with lots of gunfire and narrow escapes. Would you describe the task before you of culling from the news footage to create an narrative flow for the documentary? Yes. Well, my whole goal in the film really was to immerse people in the experience of being behind the camera. And, it, and it's nice to hear the, the thriller comparison because, you know, that, that's really what, what we wanted people to, to understand. We wanted people to be right in the middle of it. And um, a, a happy problem for any filmmaker is, of course, having hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage to, <laughs> to paw through you know, the film w would not have been made without, you know, all of these women, you know, having boxes and boxes and boxes of, of their own, you know, footage, it's CNN footage, of course, but raw footage. And it was, it was really a great problem to have. And it took a good, you know, eight months to really wrestle it down into, into, you know, sort of the, the narrative we wanted to find, but it was just a wonderful experience. And uh, Maria would call me and say, oh gosh, I found six more boxes. I'll be over soon. I'm like, great. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of work, but it was absolutely a wonderful discovery to, to see, you know, all of their decades, their body of work, and their contribution to, to everything that we know globally um, was, was just a gift. So it, it was a really great experience to go through, and, and I'm indebted to them for, you know, being their own archivist of sorts. Mm. In the film, you convey how the female camera people captured stories with empathy and authenticity. Whether it's the sound from the women in Somalia grieving at grave sites or those heartbreaking close-ups of famished children in Africa, the storytelling was 
unlike anything the world had seen on television. Why do you think these women approached filming differently than their male counterparts? Well, I think Maria kind of touched on something and, and some of the other camera women have said the same similar thing that they really paid attention to the bystanders, you know, the, the people who are not necessarily, you know, on the front lines, people who were, you know, caught up in these really difficult situations. And I think that, you know, there was a pattern I could see, you know, watching all of their footage that they really did sort of look outside of, you know, the, the theater of war to see what the impact was on, on people. And it was frequently women and children. And it was just a different sort of approach and, and care and compassion. Certainly not to say that, you know, any of their, their fellow cameraman, you know, lacked any of that. But I, I definitely saw that there was an eye towards what was happening just to, to regular people. And there's some really, you know, searing moments in, in the film that we included to really sort of pay respect to that. You know, it was something that, that really was a gift, um, you know, that fell before me. To that point, about halfway into the film, I thought again about the title, No Ordinary Life. It certainly applies to the careers of photojournalists in the documentary. And I thought it also describes the turmoil of civilians who have little or no control of their situation. Did you intend for the title to have that double meaning? You know, honestly, Alois, I never thought about that before. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> Maybe I'm overthinking. Well, it's interesting. It. I mean, the title it came from their interviews, from from their own. Uh, you know, they spoke it. I mean, both Maria and Cindy said, you know, gosh, it, it just wasn't an ordinary life when. When no. I sort of press them, well, what about the other parts of your life? And, you know, did you did you date anybody and how did that work out? <laughs> but um, really, the title, that was the genesis of it. And, and I just sat down one day, but and I, I knew that was the title of the film, but I, I never thought about that. So it's interesting. How has journalism evolved over the last few decades for female photojournalists? Well, I think there are more female photojournalists out there now. And, you know, there always have been quite a number of still photographers, female still photographers out there. But now more and more, there are women video journalists. And that's that's good to see. I mean, I think that as women, we we go through the world in a different way. We have a different perspective and that perspective needs to be seen. It's important that it's seen. And it's almost uh, kind of intangible. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what the difference is, but we're all moving through the world in our own way. And we have our own experiences that we bring to our viewpoint and those viewpoints should be shared. I, I, of course, I think there's obviously more room for female photojournalists. I know that there are more, we see more, even as a director, if I'm, you know, I'm looking for more, you know, female directors of photography, I think it's, it's growing. And, and I, you know, I hope that that's happening out in the field. You know, I don't work at CNN anymore, so I can't really give it a lot of insight into that. 
I think I think there are more, absolutely, like Maria said, and I and I hope that that continues. Filmmaker Heather O'Neill and photojournalist Maria Fleet. No Ordinary Life debuts on CNN this coming Monday, Labor Day. That's September 5th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from Amber Nicole, a local mixed-media artist who incorporates vinyl records and flowers into her portraits. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Amber Nicole, and I am a visual mixed media artist here in Atlanta. My art style is all about positively representing Black women and Black hair. I'm all about creating classic Black portraits of women. I like to use vinyl records, flowers, and even CDs to really show the power behind how our hair can be. It makes a statement, just like music, but it also has a delicate and graceful nature to it, just like flowers. So I really like using bright colors in my art that complement the vinyl records and the flowers that I use as hair. And as a black woman, I love focusing on women's afros, twists, locks, long hair, short hair, really any style that's popular in my community. I also enjoy painting on large canvases. That way I can get creative with how I place my records and flowers. It's pretty common for me to create a huge afro. And with the huge afro, I like to have my records going outside of the boundaries of my canvas. That way, I can play on the volume and texture of black hair. In 2017, I created my very first canvas as a birthday gift for my friend. I created the gift as a cool way to bring art into his recording studio. And after a few people saw the canvas, I got hit with so many people asking if I could make them a piece too. I thought, why not? During the pandemic, I spent the majority of the time at home creating new art as a way to disconnect from the craziness of the world and really find peace. I kept getting so much love and encouragement from others once I started sharing my work that I decided to follow my passion for art and officially become a full-time artist. Now I'm making large-scale vinyl record canvases and loving every single minute of it. I'm heavily inspired by music, 
fashion, really anything in the creative industry. Um, although my art focuses mainly on hair, I like to really think outside the box with new concepts and designs that aren't necessarily thought of with hair. So for example, I saw a fashion show that used a lot of neon colors on their garments. So I decided, what could that look like on a canvas? And from there, I have now UV neon inspired pieces. So really anything around me, I can use for inspiration. So Atlanta has always been home for me. I grew up in College Park, Georgia, right outside of the airport and spent pretty much my young, young adult life here in the city. I went to college downtown at Georgia State University and really got a feel for what the city is about. So all of that kind of plays into my art in one way or another, especially when it comes to the music. You can check out my work on Instagram by searching for am.nic and you'll see me, Amber Nicole. You can also go to my main website to look at my prints and past originals. That's going to be at ambernicole.studio. Mixed media artist Amber Nicole and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Nicole's work is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Marina Skye likes to call herself a mood magician. As a creative director, Skye has designed sets for music videos, clothing stores, restaurants, and more. In 2017, she started her business, Set by Sky, and has since created moods for 21 Savage, Big Boy, and T.I.'s Trap Music Museum. This past May, City Lights producer Summer Evans caught up with Sky via Zoom and began by discussing the designer's DIY journey. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. I'm an L.A. baby and ended up, I went to Clark Atlanta, so I came to Atlanta for school. And after school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I kind of had fallen in love with Atlanta. I'd become, you know, very comfortable here in this space. And I knew that it would be too expensive for me to go back to LA and figure it out. Is LA such a, in such an expensive city? After college, I stayed here and I did marketing for Ikea. And um, I did that for about a year and a half. And it was cool, but I knew that the corporate world wasn't ultimately for me personally. But I, I was, I did that because, you know, half of my family is very creative and the other half is very straight and narrow. And then about a year and a half into that, my brother was actually shot and killed. Mm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, he, um, he was killed a week after his Morehouse graduation and a week before his birthday. When that happened, it was, you know, people always say this corny thing where like, life's too short and do what you want because you never know. Like you hear that and it really takes something like jarring to happen for you to really understand that that is actually the truth. And so when he passed away, it literally was a wake up call for me. And I'm like, okay, 
I don't know if this is exactly what I want to do with my life, but I don't know what that is. But like this very intense situation has just happened. And I think it's time for me to figure out what it is that I do want to do. So at that point, I had a little, I had a little bit of money saved up for my job. I didn't at the time have any like major commitments. I didn't have any children, no pets. No, I didn't have a boyfriend at the time. <laughs> and I wrote literally, I'm very, I'm like a very physical person. So like, I like, you know, writing things down as opposed to putting notes in my phone. I'm just very hands-on. And so I took pen to paper. I wrote down a list of the things that I know that I'm good at. I can make money at and, or I wouldn't hate doing if I was to make money doing it. And one of those things was fashion. Fashion has always been something I was good at, not necessarily a passion of mine, but I knew I could make money in it. And so I started a clothing line. And when I was doing, I was going to these trade shows about a year and a half of doing this. And let me take a step back. I actually ended up, you know, quitting my corporate job and then doing this full-time. So being a full-time creative in fashion. So while I was doing that, I started to realize about a year and a half into this, that my, I was paying more attention when I would go to these trade shows to how I would make my booth look different from other people's booths, as opposed to the actual clothing that I'm supposed to be, you know, selling to people. I soon realized that that idea was creative direction and set design. And it's like the moment I figured out that that's what I was actually interested in, that that's what I was doing. It was like, God was like, this is it. Like, hello, this is what I've been trying to get you to do for the, your entire life. Like, this is finally it. Congratulations, guy. <laughs> so I started doing for a year, I did free work. I built up my portfolio because I wasn't, I'm not classically trained in this. I don't have a degree in architecture. I don't, I've never taken a theater class like ever. And these are things that typically like that set designers are well-versed in traditionally. So I had to figure out a way to gain the experience and quick um, without going back to school and, you know, in a, accruing debt and spending a lot of money. So I just did experience. So I did free creative direction set design for music videos, for photo shoots, for events for a year. And then I got my first big project, which was a multi-level nightclub that used to be on Trinity Ave called Club Daydreams. And the owner of it told me he wanted to create an experience and he wanted to use Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as the, as the muse. And I was like, well, this is unusual, but I am so excited about this. And to up to that point, I was very interested in obsessed with honestly the night culture the themed restaurant culture in Japan and so I was like well I think it'd be cool to kind of take that concept and bring it to Atlanta where people love a good theme so I designed a nightclub that was Willy Wonka meets Alice in Wonderland we had mushroom benches at the bar we had glowing clouds that changed colors on the ceiling it was colorful that sounds magical (laughs) it was cool and people loved it and the city hadn't seen anything like that. So that was the first project that kind of put me on the map. And then immediately from there, I I guess I got the attention of um, the Grand Hustle team and they reached out for me to do the Trap Music Museum. And then from there, I did an activation for 21 Savage that ended up getting a Clio Award, a Clio Advertising Award and featured in Rolling Stone. And what's the Clio Awards for those who are unfamiliar with that? 
So a Clio award is very similar to like a, a con, like a cons lion award, which is like a prestigious advertising award in, you know, the, in the advertising and marketing world. And then the projects started getting slightly bigger projects and slightly bigger projects. And I just kept on working. Yeah. And now you're making sets for music videos and concerts and all sorts. Yeah. I just did the Wale set for his tour and I did some work for Summer Walker for Jimmy Fallon and some stuff for SZA and Isaiah Rashad for Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. Very cool. (laughs) And I just love your journey, how it started out in one direction and because of something so tragic, how you're honoring your brother by living out your passion, you know, that's just, that's really cool. And that's always, you try to figure out how to take, you know, something so, so intense and, and kind of put on its head and create the flowers from the concrete if you can. So I hope I'm making them proud. (laughs) I definitely think you are. So how did you teach yourself? Did you do a lot of YouTube university? Like what did the (laughs) DIY look like for you when you started out? man, just a lot of trial and error. So when I first started out, my best friend is a photographer, an amazing photographer. His name is Spencer Charles. Um, We were kind of starting our creative journeys at the same time. He just bought a camera like a month prior to my like great realization. And so I was like, hey, Spencer, I need pictures of things that I'm making. I'm not sure what I'm making yet, but I need someone to take a photo of them. He was like, all right, well, if I just got this camera, I'm going to figure out how to work it and we're going to figure it out. <laughs> and, um, and that's what we did. So yes, to your point, a lot of DIY, um, I always tell people Pinterest is my best friend. I am on Pinterest at least three times a day. It's really ridiculous at this point. I need to have stock if it was publicly <laughs> traded. Uh, like, a lot of my inspiration comes from literally from Pinterest scrolling, like people scroll on Instagram or just like real life experiences. After a while, my brain just started to kind of absorb potential in the world. So like I'll go to a music festival and I'll see, you know, a lady with a really cool skirt on, but the way that the skirt moves, it could, it sounds like, you know, something. It could be added to a set for motion or I will be at a stoplight and I see something like a billboard on, you know, on the street. And the colors on the billboard could be associated with, you know, the colors for a music video that I'm working on. I just kind of look at things a bit differently than I used to. And I think that's just after years and years of just being so deep into being a creative that it's like I eat, breathe, sleep it at this point. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, I'm City Lights producer Summer Evans speaking with Marina Sky, owner of Set by Sky. One of your really cool accomplishments that you've done so far is the fact that you are the lead set designer and art director for TI's Trap Music Museum. For those who haven't been to the Trap Music Museum, first, can you describe what that experience is like? Yeah, so basically the Trap Music Museum is paying homage to this specific genre of music. So trap music that specifically comes from the South and certain like states and then areas of the South. And so the entire museum is a dedication to the love of this specific type of music and then the people that have created it or helped create it. So each room is a different concept. We have like your grandma's living room in there where like most rappers, like you'll start out, they'll like write their rhymes in someone's living room. 
And so we, we have a set design that's created exactly like, you know, the quintessential Southern grandma's living room with like the plastic on the couch <laughs> and, like, and like the big butt TV and, a, and a, like a wooden console. And then you kind of walk through and there are areas where you can actually make your own beats and your own music if you want to. Each room is kind of dedicated to a specific rapper. So we have a room dedicated for TI. We have a room dedica- dedicated for Gucci Mane our dedication for future, then the space itself is basically cut into to half. So the first half is specifically installation with art included on the walls. Is there background in each set or each room? Is there a little background to like Gucci man and why this is dedicated to him? Yeah. So each, each room will have like something that is quintessential that person. So the set will be catered toward that. And then the art on the walls will be of that person. And then there'll be a write-up about that person in the museum as well. It's the, the fusion of fine art and experience because we create these immersive sets, but we also have fine art included in them. Mm, very cool. And what was that collaboration process like with TI when creating the Trap Music Museum? It was really cool. At the time, I didn't know him like that. And so he would just kind of pop in at random times and he'd be, it's crazy in retrospect, like noticing things now, like years later. And I was just so into the creative process that I wasn't paying attention to what was happening around me until it happened. So like he would come in at like 11 in the morning with like CNN and we didn't know they were CNN and he would just be like showing them everything. But at the time, the museum was like halfway finished. So it wasn't nearly what it was going to end up looking like, but he would just come in with these people and explain to them things. And we're just in the thick of it, not even paying attention. And then, you know, two months later, we realized that that was in fact the correspondent for CNN and now it's featured on CNN. (laughs) It was just really cool. He's a very hands-on person. And so it's also really cool to see someone who has accrued that much fame and and success, but still be very hands-on. Did you get some free reign as to what you wanted to do with each of the rooms? Yeah, (laughs) I did. So like there were certain, certain things, like certain rooms that they were very particular about. And then there were other rooms that after I did those and they kind of, because this was my first time working with them after I kind of like proved, I had proven to myself that I could kind of create and I understood where they're coming from. They just kind of loosen the reins a bit and, you know, let me kind of do my thing being a creative. And that was really cool too. I love that you call yourself a mood magician. (laughs) I think that is really cool. Thank you. How do you get in the zone when you're preparing yourself to create a set design for a particular artist? You know, that's a really good question. I, (laughs) I think I'm always in, I'm never not in the zone which could be both a gift and a curse, right? So like what I'm personally, what I'm working on right now is like finding that balance as a creative between like like a work-life balance. And I think because I like, I just love this so much and it's such a part of like my DNA, it's hard to pull myself out of it to take breaks. I'm just like always in it, but I need to kind of pull myself out sometimes. But the two things that really help me either kind of pull myself out and just realign and also help me get focused. Being in nature is very important to me. I'm like a nature girl. I replenish, my spirit replenishes 
in the sun, <laughs> like mm-hmm. a flower. I, I feel um, you on that. I'm the same way. And then just being around my family, I'm from LA originally. And so living in Atlanta, obviously is very far away from them, but being able to just like visit them or them come and visit me or just talking to them on the phone just really helps just align myself. And then that then helps me kind of prepare myself mentally for a project. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give a young creative looking to break into this business? I, I really, I always love this question because it, it just kind of reminds me of the things that I wish I, I knew when I started out, but there are two very important pieces that I kind of, I tried to keep with me throughout the journey of this. And it's inevitable that you're going to make mistakes. If you are navigating a space that you have never been in before, you are going to, you're going to fall on your face. And the sooner you understand that and, and you're okay with that, because you understand that that's a part of the journey and the process, the better the turnout's going to be because you're not going to be as hard on yourself. So I think the first thing would be to understand that failure is, is inevitable, but it's really just about how you learn from the falls and how quickly you get back up. That kind of gauges you know, the success and the journey that you have ahead of you. And then the second thing would be to literally just keep on going. I think like if I, in retrospect, if I would have, I guess, you know, focused on, on the failures I've had, I don't know if I would have gotten as far as I've, as I've gotten this far be, because I, that would have like, just weighed me down. Creative director and designer Marina Skye, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. More information about Skye's work is on our website, wabe.org org slash city lights coming up h johnson's jazz moment and today we'll hear about jimmy smith who personified the jazz organ revolution amplifying atlanta this is 90.1 wabe This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978. As host of both blues classics and jazz classics, H. educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Lois, I just got through reading a book called Jazz, The Rough Guide. And it had an article on one of my favorite artists, and yours too, I think, Jimmy Smith. And many of us love Jimmy Smith. Anyway, I'd like to share what they said in this article about Jimmy Smith. Organ, piano, and vocals, in case you newcomers don't know about Jimmy Smith. He was born in Norristown, Pennsylvania, 1925. That's when he came to us. He won an amateur contest at the age of nine, and later appeared with his entertainer father as a duo. After Navy service, he studied bass and piano in Philadelphia. 
and he worked with a local group called the Don Gardner Group from 1952 to 55. Moving on to the electric organ then, formed his own trio, which included John Coltrane for two weeks in 1955. The following year, he made his New York debut and his first trio albums. Their immediate success led from 1957 onwards to jam sessions, albums with Smith, joined by fellow Blue Note artists, such as Art Blakey, Lou Donaldson, Lee Morgan, Jackie McLean, and others. In 1960, there were successful quartet recordings, combining people like Stanley Turrentine and Kenny Burrell, recording for the Verve label from 1962. He redoubled his popularity with the big band backings arranged by Oliver Nelson and others, mostly Oliver Nelson, even singing on a couple of albums. He toured Europe in 1966, 1972 and 1975, and settling on the West Coast, gave up touring for a while and opened up his own nightclub. He resumed touring in 1980s, in the 1980s, including Japanese and European tours in 1993 and 1995. It was Smith who defined the still standard approach to the jazz organ for his work in the late 1950s and 60s, taking the organ, guitar, drums format with optional saxophone sometimes, established earlier by organist Wild Bill Davis and Milt Buckner. He replaced their uh, big band-inspired chording and substituted fast-moving bebop lines with a shrill but punchy sound. He made sure his articulation was well-defined at all tempos so that the execution and excitement of his concept was clearly communicated to the audience. Add to this was a distinct flavoring of blues phrases, which was one of the factors leading to the fruition of soul jazz in the late 1950s. By the mid-60s, though, it came to dominate Smith's work to the uh, exclusion of all else. And from time to time, he influenced not only former jazz pianists who took up the organ, but also all of those keyboard players and blues and funk players. There is, however, just... Only one, only one, Jimmy Smith. WABE's H. Johnson and our series H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Catch H.'s Blues Classic Show tonight and every Friday from 10 p.m. to midnight and do return for Jazz Classics 
every Saturday night from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday, WABE will air a Labor Day special in place of City Lights. We're back Tuesday at 11 a.m. when we'll hear about Emory Cinematheque's film series Federico Fellini, a centennial celebration. Terminus Modern Ballet Theater's production of Step the Brain Along a Path is coming to the first Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech next weekend. And we'll hear from the creatives behind that collaborative project. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.